0: And now, back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts.
1: Hey, ask yourself the question. Do you love your kids? Certainly. like every parent says, I love my kids. They can be a little bit problematic sometimes. There are days when, you know, if we could turn back the clock, we might have thought <laughs> differently. But overall, sure, we love our kids. But how do we love our kids? And does it, in the end, make a difference? So there's so much to parenting these days. And unfortunately, it's the one really big, important job in life where a lot like marriage, you don't get a handbook. There's no manual. There's no advanced prequalifications. You just kind of dive in and you go. And if you came, fortunately, from a good, strong family and uh, your parents did a pretty good job raising you, you can kind of model your parenting skills after them. And if you didn't, well, you think about what mom and dad did and then do the opposite. Right. But in the end, some of the keys uh, to parenting can come down to not just that we love our children but how we love our kids that coincidentally is the title of a new book released by our guests on this segment of lifeline Mylan and kay Yurkovich. and uh, welcome both of you to the program Hi, Craig, how are you? I'm Great. well, thanks. Great to be with you. I, I think of the the five languages of love, and now you have brought out the five love styles. And let, let's spend a moment, when we talk about this, I think, you know, at, at basic level, people think, well, of course I love my kids, and, and sometimes I've learned from people like James Dobson I have to employ tough love. But what are these five different styles of loving?
2: Well, essentially... um, You end up seeing different people like the avoider parent who, male or female, is the emotionally detached parent. Uh, You have the pleaser who's the rescuing parent who wants everybody to be happy. You have what we call the vacillator parent who's dedicated but highly preoccupied and sometimes present, sometimes not. Also, a person gets angry. A controller, the autocratic parent, and then the victim, the childlike parent.
1: And all those styles, of course, there are good aspects, there are negative aspects, there are benefits, there. I I, I suppose it's like anything, you know, the the, the negatives weigh in with the positives. As we look at these different styles of parenting, give me some insight in terms of where do they come from? Is this something that's learned behavior? Do we model it after the way our parents loved us? What?
0: Yes,
3: we we really do get our first lessons about love from our own families growing up, but we don't often stop to really ask ourselves, what exactly were those lessons and what was good about them and what what would I like to change about them? And, you know, we were married 15 years and parented for 15 years without ever really looking back to answer or ask that question. So we, we come out of our homes with an an imprint of intimacy or beliefs about relational styles in each one of these that Mylan just mentioned um, have some specific issues that often we aren't aware of.
1: Well, let's talk about some of the things that we're not aware of. Okay, and-
3: well, for example, I was the avoider parent. And so I came from a home where um, my parents did a great job raising responsible, self-sufficient kids, and we performed well. Uh, but where they, where they were weak, and I don't think they realized this, was they were weak in emotional connection. We were never asked about feelings as, as a kid and with my sisters. We were never comforted when we were emotionally distressed. We were sort of left to figure that out on our own. So I adopted those rules and parented my own kids in the same way. And I think most avoider parents, male or female, are are going to be task-oriented, and they're going to applaud mastery and independence. And sometimes I expected my kids to be further along than they were really developmentally ready to be. And, you know, when when my kids were frustrated or, um, you know, upset, I really didn't have the skills to draw out their emotions or ask them what they were feeling because I didn't really know what I was feeling.
1: But toward that end, I, I'm, I'm curious, Mylan. how did your parenting style uh, work in harmony or, or against? Was there a sense of balance between the two of you? Oh, well, I like your
2: optimistic start.
1: <laughs> did they work
2: in harmony? Well, actually, they didn't, because as a pleaser parent, I wanted everybody to be happy. And I was a fear-based parent, which is what uh, pleasers are. And, you know, what happens is, is that uh, pleaser parents often, even though they're fun and they create warm, nurturing environments, sometimes their highest value is safety, protection, and keeping everybody happy, and they want to protect kids, and they can overly protect kids, and ultimately... Uh, discourage exploration and so on and so forth
1: so, Does this also tend to be somebody that perhaps avoids conflict wants to keep every, you know just let's not ruffle the feathers let's keep everybody happy absolutely. so there can be some so, some some might regard this then Mylan, as, as a, a lack of discipline at some levels
2: well that's perhaps true uh pleaser parents are not as respected as other parents um often because they're pushovers and they can the kids can get by with stuff and the parent doesn't want to create friction that causes the child to become angry at them because they're fear-based and they like to have everybody in a, a happy place. And so they really can't offer um, what you said earlier in your introduction, uh, like James Dobson said, they have a hard time with this tough love concept and people do need a good balance of tough and tender or as it says in John, truth and grace.
1: You know, there's so much work that needs to be done here because it, it occurs to me as we as we in life go about finding that perfect life partner. You know, we, we typically think about compatibility in terms of, you know, where do you like to vacation? And, you know, how do you like to decorate the house? And where do you want to live? And how many kids would you like to, to have? We, we think about manners in which husband and wife will mesh together relationally, but I would suspect there are a few that would sit down and advance of making a decision to get married and say, so, tell me about your parenting style, you know? Well, that's true. And then if you get two parenting styles that are identical or are are polar opposites, and as you've suggested by the title of the book, in, in five different styles of parenting, uh, it would almost seem as if, if somebody uniquely, and I would suspect it might be a combination where some people are have, you know, high tendencies toward one and a lower tendency toward another so that there's a number represented. But what happens, for example, Kay, when there's only two... Two represented the other three are missing. Does that really create havoc?
3: Well, you know, these styles are a little different from the five love languages that you mentioned earlier because that's just a you know positive way that your spouse would like to sh- be shown love. These are more injuries. In other words, when each one of these styles represents some sort of inability to create emotional connection and to really create that balance Mylon was talking about between love and nurturing and discipline and boundaries and so as the avoider i was overly rigid and not able to emotionally connect and myelin was too free-spirited and you know unable to set those boundaries but um you know the vacillator parent is the third one and You know, their um, ideal is to have a family that just stands out and is superior. And what the vacillator doesn't really realize is that they are very, very sensitive to rejection. And oftentimes they're very preoccupied with how all their relationships are going, whether that's their marriage or their friendships. And it, it takes a lot of head space for them. And so many times when they're present with their child, they're really not all there. And so, what the child feels with the vacillator is, "I'm here, you're present with me," and then all of a sudden, you go away, and I, even though you're present in the room, I, you're not here. Mm. And so, the child feels a sense of
1: um, present, but the, but the exactly, parent is disengaged. Exactly. Yeah, yeah.
2: So all these, uh, uh, Craig, are in contrast to a secure attachment style you mentioned in your intro that some of us came from really good homes where we were known, seen, valued, and cared for. And we would describe that person as a person who had a secure parenting experience as a child. And they they grow up and they naturally know how to create security in relationships. These others are what we call the insecure attachment styles. And so many books are about how to fix the kid. This is a book about... How to work on us as parents, how one small change in you can make a big change in your kids.
1: And that's so key because, again, given to the notion, as Kay mentioned, that we typically will model after the parenting style of our parents, good or bad, uh, if that's all we have to go upon, uh, my goodness, that that can be very problematic, especially, as you suggest, if the vast majority of us did not come from homes where mom and dad were perfect, then what do you do? And oftentimes, as you point out, we look at it as trying to fix things with the kids when oftentimes what's going on with the kids is a direct result from the parenting style. A look at how we love of our kids, the five love styles of parenting, and how one small change in you can result in one big change in your kids. Mylan and Kay Yurkovich with us tonight. We'll be back with more insights as this edition of Lifeline continues.
0: And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts.
1: How We Love Our Kids, The five Love Styles of Parenting. And, and Richard reminds me, aren't you going to let listeners know, by the way, that Mylon is one of the co-hosts on New Life Live? And I thought, yeah, you know, that's that that's that over 40 thing again that I, I keep reading about. <laughs> Indeed, of course, the program with our good friend Steve Otterburn, weekday afternoons at 1 p.m. right here on KFAX. And and, and a million apologies, uh, Mylon, if I may. <laughs> oh, no, not necessary at all. Hey, as we're talking all. about these styles here i I like what you said just prior to the break the notion that so often we approach this from the standpoint of trying to fix our kids when if at first we would focus on well dare i dare say it fix our parenting styles sure there might be the real key give us some insights from both of your perspectives if you would uh, as we kind of sit down and look at the list we have to analyze of course uh, mom's parenting style dad's parenting style and then where do we go from there
2: Well, I think when Jesus spoke to the Pharisees in um, uh, the Gospels, uh, uh, he said to them, You know, the pupil cannot rise above the teacher, but when fully trained will be just like the teacher. Mm. And he was saying that to them uh, after he called them blind guides. And he said... You know, the people of Israel can't see me because you can't see me. And he said they're not going to get any higher or more elevated in their capacities than you. And I think it's a good passage to help us understand that how we're trained is about as far as we're going to go until we choose to get further training. So, again, as a pleaser, I was a fear-based parent, the vacillators are very shame-based parents, and they also fluctuate between being overly uh, often rescuing and intrusive with their child to distant and angry, and so they they vacillate back and forth, and the avoiders tend to be very much about task and mastery, and this can also, Craig, create a a triangulation in the marriage where uh, the rescuing parent is is more empathetic and has more, shall we say, um, uh, empathy for the child. And then the avoider's less, you know, empathic, and then the parents are arguing about what should happen to the child without stopping and asking, are you balanced and am I balanced, (laughs) you know, in our assessments? And maybe, as you said earlier, we need to ask and balance each other out a little bit more.
1: This really needs to be a team effort. In other words, this is not dad picking on mom or vice versa. Well, it sure happens a lot.
3: (laughs) Yeah, it does happen a lot. And I, I think an important question, we ask a great diagnostic question in our first book, which looks at these love styles in marriage. You know, do you have a memory of comfort from your own childhood where a parent saw that you were distressed and they noticed that you were emotionally upset about something and they sought you out and really listened to you and drew out your heart and, you know, offered comfort so you left that experience feeling relief. And surprisingly, about 80% of our audiences don't have one memory like that. So comfort is a big part of emotional connection, and avoiders don't know how to do it, and pleasers are afraid of negative feelings. They avoid them. You know, vacillators are so preoccupied that they often aren't able to give their kids comfort because they're trying to comfort themselves. And, and, and
2: their world is either good or bad. Yeah. It's just all good or all bad.
3: And then that last style that we haven't even talked about yet, you know, the people that come from really difficult homes that end up being controllers or victims, Um you know, they they just don't have any memories. In fact, the thing, they didn't get comfort. They actually got, their parents were stress makers instead of stress reducers. Um, so this whole idea of learning to emotionally connect and, and comfort each other um, was really transforming for us in our marriage, and it really helped us um, learn how to emotionally connect to our kids
1: as well and a lot of this Kay, does it come down to learning how to bring about a balance of the good things from all five love styles is that what the goal is here in the end
3: i think the goal is to really look at your love style as an injury in other words as an avoider i didn't get emotional connection in my family and i was very unable to do it with my own kids, when I realized that, I had to take responsibility for that lack of training in my own home, and I had to learn to know what my feelings were, I had to learn to be able to articulate them, and the more comfortable I got in expressing emotions and accepting comfort for myself, the more I was able to do it for my children. So each of these styles sort of is representative of an injury from your own family, And taking responsibility to really understand that and how it hampers your parenting and and growing towards a more um, secure um, style where you really have the capacity to uh, connect and to relate um, on an emotional level and to listen well. Um, You know, so often we see our kids' behavior and we just react to behavior without ever saying, why is this child behaving this way? What stresses them? We don't ask enough questions to even sometimes understand that.
1: And, you know, this is such an important key because, Mylon, you touched on this earlier. I mean, certainly from an empowerment standpoint, and this is true in any relationship, the one that we have control over ultimately is ourselves. If we start working on ourselves, understanding our parenting style, seeing the benefits, uh, the disadvantages, and and beginning to work on that, that certainly is the one key that we can control. But I suppose, too, there's also the dynamic here as much as there is the parenting style. Then there's just the kid's style, so to speak, the kid's personality. In the book, you talk about the free-spirited, the determined, the sensitive, the introverted, the premature. Then I guess there's sort of the meshing of your parenting style with the child's, uh, how would we say it, Mylon, parenting needs? Well, I think
2: parenting needs is a very good term. I wished we would have used that in the
4: book. <laughs>
2: <laughs> so, uh, yes, you're right. It's um, every child's unique, and a lot of people, especially in evangelical Christianity, want to create cookie cutter formulas for how to raise a kid. And some kids are what we call a highly sensitive child, and and they they are perhaps sensitive to touch and light and sounds and. And they're fussier, and and yet if they're put into the same plan as as a child who's not that way, they, they really cave under the pressure, and their life is not a happy one. Uh, I think we can have the same standards, but different approaches to each child.
1: needs to be a lot of flexibility, then, because your parenting style may not match their parenting needs, and every child within the family, three, four, five kids, whatever, may all indeed, as unique individuals, have different needs. Oh, absolutely.
3: You know, that's so true, and... You know, I think anybody who's had more than one child realizes the the truth of that. But in the same respect, we all do need to be really understood and loved and known. And, you know, we ask a question in our seminars. How many of you felt you had parents who deeply knew you, um, knew what made you tick, knew what your likes and dislikes were, um, knew what your struggles and stresses were, and, again, there's a, there's a, just a minority of people who raise their hands. And so every child really needs to be deeply known and valued and loved. And um, to the degree that we receive that as kids, you know, then we know how to do it. But if we didn't have parents who deeply knew us, and we're, we're going to be lacking those skills. So this is really a, a Even book. awareness. An awareness. That's right. Um, I mean, I parented for 15 years with no awareness that I was really parenting as an avoider. And my last, our fourth child um, got the best of us. And, mm-hmm. you know, you can see her ability to emotionally connect and be able to articulate feelings and um, listen well. Uh, it's just
1: at a higher level. And I would suspect, too, here in the end, you know, it takes time. It takes an investment because you're getting to not only know the parenting style of your spouse but also the unique individual needs of your kids and obviously that number in in time increases exponentially based on the size of your family Uh, but that said i would imagine mylon we shouldn't feel overwhelmed by this task
2: i think we need to feel like i can start any time to get better um there's Uh, a a very prominent physician some years ago who said, you know, if we provide good enough parenting, um, it it will be adequate. Uh, We're not trying to be the super parent, and we're not trying to be the worst one on the block either. We're trying to get better and improve. And this thing called sanctification that the Bible talks about, that we should be growing over the course of a lifetime, we ask many people in our audiences, how many of you ever felt as though your parents were growing over the course of your childhood and adolescence? And again, very few hands go up, you know, that I never saw growth. So it's a gradual thing, isn't it? You know, the concept of growth in the Bible, it's like seasons and time and fruit and fruit bearing. It's, it's, a, it's a function of time and growth.
1: The book, again, is entitled How We Love Our Kids, The Five Love Styles of Parenting, One Small Change in You, One Big Change in Your Kids. The new book, by the way, published by Waterbrook, available at bookstores throughout the Bay Area. Also, more information on both the ministry of Mylan and Kay and information on the book on their website, HowWeLove.com. That's
0: HowWeLove.com. And now, back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Somebody's daughter, somebody's child
1: She is somebody's daughter. You know, I don't think we ever think of the issue of pornography in that fashion. Typically, it's an unknown face without a name, somebody that doesn't seem to be connected in any level toward reality. And and as a result, the purveyors of this, uh, those who are making huge amounts of money, uh, at the distribution, publication, and distribution of pornography, really don't think about the impact, and yet it has a significant impact, and not only on the lives of, of those who are consuming the material, but those who are participating in it from an economic standpoint. Steve Siller joins us on the pro- program. He is founder of Music for the Soul and executive producer of uh, part of the song you just heard there a moment ago, uh, highlighted, um, Somebody's Daughter. And Steve, thanks so much for taking time to be with us tonight. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. You know, the lyrics to your song certainly bring it home back to a a level of reality that I suspect uh, most people um, who are trapped in a world of um, consuming a pornography, I don't quite know how how to phrase that, Mm. uh, don't really ever stop to think about the fact that, you know what, these are are real people. These are real lives here.
4: Mm -hmm. Human beings. Uh, whenever I talk to people about this uh, out, out in uh, churches and in, in schools and the like, I always ask the question: uh, You know, if if this woman in in the video were your uh, little sister, would that be okay? If it were your uh, wife or your girlfriend or your mother, how would how would that be? And 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 generally, you just see heads start to drop around the room as, as people realize that that these are human beings. And I think the thing that is so alarming is is the desensitization that has gone on and how we uh, in the Church have kind of uh, allowed ourselves to be taken along with that tide rather than opposing it.
1: Yeah, indeed. And, you know, when we think about this, part of the motivation, of course, gets down to a core issue of man's sin nature, uh, our, our uh, fallen condition in which uh, we get pulled into all of this. And not only from the standpoint of consuming it, but then this is big business, isn't it? It's major money here.
4: Oh billion dollar industry pornography itself worldwide is, is, is above 50 billion uh, child pornography is above 3 billion so there's, there's a ton of money here and and you know just thinking about sex and how it sells there was something on on tuesday morning on good morning america that for me pointed out where we are what time of the day it is on this it's eleven fifty nine. uh... That, the new uh, britney spears album has just come out And they did a 15-minute piece celebrating her career. And this is at 9 o'clock in the morning. And they are showing videos of her songs that basically feature groups of half-naked young people riding all over one another. And the entire piece is just a tribute to her. There There is not one word as to you know, whether or not this is a good thing. <laughs> uh, and, and I think, you know, I, I doubt very seriously that the, that the ABC switchboard was swamped with uh, disapproving phone calls. And that's what I mean when I say we've kind of gone along with it. Uh, the kind of wholesale uh, soft-core pornography that you see in any mall, That you see, uh, you know, uh, the the Washington Redskins football uh, calendar had a cheerleader on the cover that was topless. She had her arms positioned, uh, you know, in a way to hide it a little bit. But basically, this is the kind of stuff that's going on, and we participate in the culture. We, go, we shop at the mall. We, you know, we watch the television shows, and we don't realize that by, by going along with this, we are help creating a climate where our young people are, are learning a, a model for intimacy that is not going to serve them.
1: At all we 've become terribly desensitized to all of this haven 't we? I mean, uh, down through the years as society and culture have changed, and I, I would suspect in a significant fashion since the advent of the internet uh, that brings oh, yeah. all of this into your home with the touch of a finger, oftentimes whether you want it or not uh, well, yeah, uh, that, yeah, that, yeah. that maybe maybe a lot of people Good, decent people, uh, people that recognize that that there is damage and injury that's suffered Mm -hmm. here uh, when you engage in this kind of behavior on both ends of the perspective, um, have finally maybe just kind of, what, thrown in the towel, Steve, and figured, you know what, this thing has become so big, so out of control, so behemoth, that it's hardly worth not even fighting anymore, because it seems as if you're fighting a losing battle.
4: Well, I've actually heard some Christians say that, and and it really breaks my heart, because my feeling is you you wouldn't let your children go out and play in the front yard without teaching them to hold hands and cr- and look both ways before they cross the street, and yet day after day after day we equip our our young people with devices that access this material, and not even just access it that that allow them to create their own uh, material. I mean that's happening as well now, and we are you know we are not equipping. Our young people to, to deal with the culture they're growing up in. Uh, and, and, I, and I really want to make the point that that pornography is not about sex. Pornography is about, uh, it's a fantasy experience. You, you know, you, you, you cut off the, the power and the screen goes blank. Uh, this is about using a fantasy experience and, and using people because you're taking something. From those people in in the uh, in the video or the magazine or whatever, you're taking something from from them without giving anything back, and I think that's what's so dangerous about it. It, it creates a false model of intimacy, and what's even scarier is that there is new brain science that shows that pornography is actually rewiring and brain mapping, uh, you know, traditional intimacy right out of our kids.
1: Well, and I'm wondering if at that level, Steve, we're not watching a major paradigm shift taking place in society uh, overall. I mean, we've seen great celebratory comments related to things like uh, Facebook and its role in in such matters as the toppling of uh, Mubarak in Egypt and the notion that with the Internet and social media, you know, even as much as a, a horrible... Uh, dictatorship would try to clamp down on information getting around mm-hmm. to people or out of a, of, of a given country, uh, that this has sort of been the feather pillow from which you'll never stuff all the feathers back into again. So right. as much as it's being celebrated as helping people get connected and stay together my goodness, here on Facebook I ran across a buddy from high school from 50 years ago. How wonderful mm-hmm. that is. And yet it's creating, I would suspect this sense of, of not just false intimacy, but these walls where all of a sudden now levels at ed- which, in normative relationships, in mm-hmm. historically normal relationships, uh, it, it just—it's—it's it's shifted the terms of engagement.
4: It has and 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 facebook and and the internet and all the technologies of themselves they're not evil it, it is always a matter of how we're going to use those technologies and you're right those technologies can be used for good and and I mean here we are talking on the radio and, and sharing this message so you know i, I don't encourage people to be uh To be down on technology, I I encourage responsible use of technology. And just for a moment, I feel like I didn't really address your question about uh, the, the people who feel hopeless about this. I mean, I always come back to God's mercies being new every morning. He's given us another day. He's given us new children being born into the world. Obviously, if He's given us a new day and new life, then there is hope and there is a chance and, and, and responsible people, people who are moral, not just Christian people, people uh, of all uh, faiths and backgrounds who are moral have a responsibility to step up and protect our kids. The, the truth of the matter is, of our kids are going to see pornography before they graduate from high school in this culture. So, you know, people are always asking me what the statistics are. At this point, I think you can throw them all out the window. You're right. The feathers are out of the pillow. This is the world we live in. Our only choice now is how will we respond to it? How will we mentor our kids? How will we get healthy? How will we shine the light of truth in the church on this issue?
1: Let's pause on that point. When we come back, let's see if we can't touch on some of the answers to those critical questions. I mean, all right, if we recognize the fact, as you point out, um, our kids are going to be exposed to this. There are those listening right now, housewives, and, you know, I never went looking for this. And I went to this website looking for a recipe. And all of a sudden, we all know what the spam does and so forth. How do you go about equipping your kids to understand what this is and and countering what appears to be some very Messages. I mean, mom and dad and the church are all saying that this is not good, not healthy, um, is going to be potentially ruinous to your ability to carry on a healthy, proper relationship, and yet... If it's so bad, why is it so prevalent? We'll answer that question as well. Steve Siller, my guest, founder of Music for the Soul, executive producer of Somebody's Daughter. We're talking today about um, a recent uh, Harvard Crimson article on pornographic pornography uh, and the question of ethics and uh, how addiction to pornography can be so ruinous to so many aspects of normal living. Back to more of our conversation as Lifeline continues.
4: Daughter, somebody's child.
1: Our conversation with Steve Siller, who is, by the way, the executive producer of the uh, highlight of the tune you just heard a moment ago, Somebody's Daughter. We're talking about the impact of pornography and the challenges that we face in trying to bring balance to this topic. I mean, it was challenging 30, 40, 50 years ago with the advent of of certain publications out there. You know, the the Hugh Hefner's of the world, uh, uh, Larry Flint's and those. Uh, Now, with the advent of... The world Wide Web, it's impossible to control it. And as Steve points out, parents face the fact your children, like it or not, will be exposed to pornography. The question is, how will they react to it? Will they see it? Will they balance biblical Perspective And toward that end, is, is it problematic and challenging, particularly for young people, Steve, because as much as uh, parents in the church and those in the know are trying to warn kids about the impact of all of this, that it's not just something that's, that's ooh, nasty, but it can create false intimacy that later on can damage uh, the ability to carry on a normal relationship with a spouse, but, but then, too, that notion that we're trying to combat something here with so many mixed messages in the general public that I would imagine a lot of teenagers look at this and say well wait a minute you know if it's so bad and so terrible how come it's so pervasive
4: yeah that's a really good question uh you know one of the things that that i think we have to do and as christian parents as, as parents in general it's it's not easy because i mean you know we've all heard about the talk right <laughs> ever since we oh, were yes. kids the, talk. The, the point is i think one of the first things we can do for our kids you know we yeah. always tell our kids at church the truth will set them free uh, then we don't tell about the truth that they're living through. And I think what we need to say to them is, look, it's natural to have curiosity about sex. God created sex. It's beautiful. It's wonderful. It is exciting. But you want to experience it in the proper context and with a proper understanding of its power. So toward that end, let me share with you why pornography is not the proper way to experience sex. I th- but I think that starting point is admitting, yeah, this is exciting. This, is, this, this gets you worked up. And, and I think, I know kids hate to be manipulated. Whenever I talk to high school kids and even college kids, I always tell them, don't you realize the pornographers are manipulating your natural hormones? to their financial advantage. They don't care about you. They don't care whether this is going to ruin your ability to have intimacy. They don't care whether it's going to mess up your relationship with your girlfriend. They don't care about any of that. They just want to get you hooked when you're young so they'll have a customer for life. And I think when kids realize that, they can get a little angry, and that's when I think they have a chance against this stuff, when they value themselves enough to say, you know what, I'm not going to be tricked into spending, you know, ruining my intimacy and spending and my worth and my value uh, throwing it away on this stuff.
1: The talk. How, how soon should we begin the talk? How how educated do parents need to get ahead of it? You know, and I know that sounds like an odd question, it's like I'm your parent, of course I understand how the birds and the bees work. If I didn't you wouldn't be here. Well, but you know, yet it's changed so drastically. Steve, even from when I was a kid, and I'm I'm sure. I'm I'm you know, I'm certainly no kid, but I'm no fossil either. It's changed so dramatically to try to be able to understand and relate to these kids as they're dealing with the barrage of not just the internet but now cell phones and texting and sexting and all this, too. Mm-hmm,
4: mm-hmm. Well, I think, yes, parents have to have to be educated. In fact, uh, there's a number of things I want to say about this. Uh, I, I have a, a, something I've created called the Things You Can Do list, and I want to make sure everybody knows how to get it because it's free. It's at our website. One of the things that I encourage parents, Uh, parents to do is get educated, and I encourage churches to have ongoing parental er education in this area because the technology that was the coolest six months ago, you know how that goes. It's out of date already. I mean, kids are able to access this stuff through ways that most parents don't even realize, like through a Wii. You know, I mean, it's crazy what, what the technology can do, and our kids fly this stuff like jet planes because they've been on the technology since they were little. Whereas, you know, folks like us, I mean, we've come to it later in life. So we, we don't even really understand how quickly uh, and how pervasively this stuff can move around. So, yes, education is important. But I think as, as far as having the talk early, uh, you know, we, we, we have to understand kids are seeing this stuff. The average age of exposure now to, to pornography, I've heard as low as 8. The oldest age I've heard in the last year is 11 on average. Uh, You know, I wish we could afford to wait uh, till later, because, you know, we all hate this idea of of ruining our kids' innocence. But, uh, you know, a dear friend of mine, his his six-year-old was doing a little homework assignment and came across something hardcore. So, uh, you know, and I've heard that story more than once. So I just really, you know, want to encourage people. Obviously, you need to do things age appropriately, but I want to encourage people not to shy away from beginning to have these discussions in a way that will give their kids some guardrails and as far as technology goes i mean parents need to understand you know you need to have all kinds of of internet accountability internet filter software on all your computers uh... The, you know the blocking software you need to have it on your phones you need to have it on your televisions you need to have every computer in the house and pass through rooms my son is seventeen he still doesn't have a computer or a tv in his room and he feels amish that's too bad <laughs> Uh, you know, that's just too bad. You know, that says our kids are going to go out into the world. you got to know your parents' friends. You've got to talk about this stuff. It isn't any fun. Like you said, I wish it wasn't true, but it is. got to talk about this stuff because we can't. i put it this way. We, the church wants to be a light in the world. We can't be a light in the world until we mentor our own kids. We can't mentor our own kids until we admit that as adults we struggle with it. We need to come clean and get healthy. And we can't do any of that until we just start talking about it. So so for me, somebody's daughter is that light switch that can be turned on in a church. Start the conversation. And once you do that, there's all sorts of things you can do.
1: Some good insights from Steve Siller, again, executive producer of Somebody's Daughter. Steve, finally, if folks uh, touched by this song would like to get a copy of it, is available through iTunes or how?
4: Uh, the DVD's on iTunes. The DVD CD set is at our website. They can go to Somebody's or And they can also, to get the three things you can do list, they can go to MusicForTheSoul.org. On the home page, click on pornography, and it'll take you to a page with all sorts of free resources. And I really encourage them to get the things you can do list from our page, print it out, take it to their church, read through it, and find some things that you can begin to do, things you can do personally, things you can do in your family, in your church, and in your community at large to make a difference. Because if we all get involved... And start taking a piece of this, we can turn this tide. I really believe we can.
1: Indeed, so. Steve Siller, thanks so much for the time. And again, on the web, somebodysdaughter.org or musicforthesoul.org.